Hello and welcome to the Use Because podcast. Deeper learning from the best business minds to have ever put pen to paper. What is it that makes one person say yes to another person? What are the weapons of influence? This is ultimately the, the crux of the book that we're going to cover in today's podcast. It's called Influence, the Psychology of Persuasion. And it's basically the gold standard for understanding persuasion techniques or influence or understanding the psychology behind uh, why we say yes to some people and other people can never make us say yes. The book is written by a guy called Dr. Robert Cialdini and it actually was written in 1984, but it's still today, 35 years later, it's still today considered the, like I said, the gold standard for understanding persuasion. Now the book itself is maybe less than 300 pages, 250, 280 pages, something like that. But essentially, it's an encyclopedia of examples of experiments, data, all of these things that that make basically it very, very believable as to these being the six principles of persuasion. And that's what we're going to cover in this podcast here today is the six principles of persuasion. One of the first weapons of influence that he talks about is something called automatic action. Right, when people just automatically, it's almost like running a program, I suppose. Back in 1984, he, he wouldn't have had this analogy, but it's almost like when you open Microsoft Word and Word opens, right? The computer runs the program to open Microsoft Word. The same thing happens in the human brain. It's a, it's a somewhat decent analogy for how we just run programs. For example, if me and you met in person and I put my hand out to shake hands, you don't think what the hell is this gesture that he's making here. You know exactly what it is and we shake hands, right? You put your hand out, we meet at, a, at an appropriate distance. Uh, we grasp each other's hands. Generally, the right hand is the hand we shake hands with. Grasp each other's hands. The hands go up and down three or four times. We both let go and that's the end of that program being run. And it's actually interesting. It's This is a bit of an aside. We're not even, not even three minutes into this. This is an aside. Uh, if you know who Darren Brown is, right, the, the mentalist or the hypnotist, one of the things that he does or used to do, I don't know if he does it as much anymore, is called a snap induction, right? It's like you can uh, instantly hypnotize people. Now, it sounds like it's a bit woo-woo and a bit bullshitty, to be honest, but it's actually, it works. And the reason that it works is because of this uh, this automatic action, this program that's running in our minds, Right. So let's imagine that me and you go to uh, have a handshake, right? And we don't, you don't ever really consider, okay, how do I actually go about doing this? You just run the program, you shake the hands, and that's the end of it. But if that program gets interrupted halfway through by something strange happening, your brain is scrambled, and it's looking for anything, it's looking to be grounded again, basically, in, in some sort of uh, logic or in some sort of sense. And one of the things, if you ever, you can... You can Google like snap induction uh, on on YouTube, and you can see videos of it. Some people, I think, might be a bit more uh, a bit more of a charlatan than say Darren Brown is. But Darren Brown, there's examples of him doing it as well. And what he does is, and and by the way, it doesn't work with everybody, right? Uh, some people are obviously more suggestible than others. But the snap induction works by interrupting the the handshake program, for want of a better word or a better uh, analogy, and. So what he does is he goes to shake hands with somebody and as he reaches in with his right hand and the other person reaches in with their right hand, he takes his left hand and grabs the other person's wrist. And already now this has interrupted the program. That's not what you do when you're you're shaking hands with somebody. 
And as the other person is looking to figure out why he's grabbed the wrist, he puts a bottle of like a, a water bottle into the person's hand. It could be anything. And uh, from there, then he can kind of work his magic to, to kind of confuse the person into just doing what he needs them to do. Other things I've seen people do with snap inductions as well is uh, they do, do the same thing where they grab a person's wrist and they just slowly turn the person's hand back towards themselves. Just very slowly, very gently, and they point at the person. So the person is essentially looking at their own palm, right, of the hand that they were supposed to be shaking hands with. They're now looking at the palm of that hand. And the, the hypnotist or the, the person doing a snap induction can say, just tap the person's palm and say, just look here. And they just very slowly just tap the person's forehead with their own hand and they'll say sleep. And generally, if they say it in the right way, there's a f probably a few more subtleties to it than that. But essentially what happens is that the brain is totally scrambled in that in that one and a half or two seconds where somebody is going, what? I thought we were going to shake hands. This program has been all scrambled. What's going on? And what the brain is doing is it's looking for anything that makes sense. So when the person gives a strong command to sleep or to relax or to do whatever, generally the brain will just grab onto it and it'll just do what it's, okay, well, that makes sense. I'll do that. Then it's almost like short-circuiting the brain ultimately. Now, like I said, it sounds a bit bullshitty. It sounds a bit ridiculous, but it's actually one of the things that he talks about in the book, getting back to the book now, this book Influence the Psychology of Persuasion by uh, Dr. Robert Cialdini, PhD. Uh he talks about a famous experiment and it's to do with a photocopier or, or Xerox machine as they called it back in the day. And it basically says that it's a, it's, it's, it isn't a well, a well-known principle of human behavior that when we ask someone to do us a favor, you're going to be more successful if you provide a reason as to why you want that favor done. And there's a Harvard social psychologist called Ellen Langer uh, and she ran this experiment. And she used uh, the library of the college and there was a, uh, a copying machine, a photocopying machine. Basically, her first request was, excuse me, I have five pages. May I use the Xerox machine because I'm in a rush? 94% of people let her skip ahead of them in the line. But then what she did was, she did it again, but she changed her request very slightly. She said, excuse me, I have five pages. Can I use the Xerox machine? And under those circumstances, only 60% of those people who were asked actually complied with the request. And the difference between the two requests was because I'm in a rush. She gave a reason the first time and got 94% of people to, to let her skip the queue. The second time she didn't give a reason. She just said, excuse me, I have five pages, may I use the Xerox machine? And only 60% let her. But what was really interesting was the third type of request that she tried. And that one included a reason that didn't really make any sense, really just reiterated the first part of the request. And what she said exactly was, excuse me, I have five pages, may I use a Xerox machine because I have to make some copies. And the result was almost identical to the first one. It was 91%, very slightly lower than uh, when she gave a, a reasonable reason, as in she was in a rush. This time around, she just had to make some copies. That was her reason. But there was still 91% compliance. And so what happened then with this is that the, I suppose the, the ultimate result from this experiment is that the word because triggered an automatic compliance response. And here's another little aside. Uh, this is a question I personally get asked a lot. Why is the, uh, the company called, why is, why is used because so-called? And it's specifically to do with that experiment. And because... The word because is considered the most persuasive word in the world. 
you know, or the most persuasive word in the English language at least, give a reason, you'll get a higher compliance regardless of that reason. I kind of looked at it in a slightly different way and I thought to myself, well then that means that anything is possible when you use because. So there you go. You can all stop asking me why it's called use because. Um, I decided on that name many, many years ago. I thought anything is possible when you use because and it kind of fits in well with what we're trying to do here with uh, teaching people these behavioral skills to, to improve their own lives and the lives of others. Oh, very nice. But that's basically where the, where the name comes from. Anyway, back to the book. So... One of the things I said there a few minutes ago about this particular book is that he decided, he the author, Robert Cialdini, that there are six principles of persuasion. Now it's important to keep in mind that as we go through these six principles of persuasion, there's a few things actually. One, they're listed out chapter by chapter, obviously enough, in the book, and it's 100% worth getting this book and reading it because, like I said, it's an encyclopedia of examples, uh, places to use them, how to av- how to avoid it being used on you, all that kind of thing. It's hugely, hugely beneficial. But the six principles of persuasion are listed out quite linearly, right? As if you do this, then you do this, then you do this. And in the real world, when you're in conversations where you're trying to influence somebody or trying to move their, their frame of mind, you're not going to just do one thing and then do the next thing and then do the next thing. You're going to be, they're, they're, they all overlap all the time. And it's important to keep that in mind that just because they're explained as the six principles of persuasion doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to use them in isolation. You use them all together and you're, it's almost like whack-a-mole, right? Where you're kind of hitting one and then the other, then the other one pops up again. You're kind of, you're doing them all at the same time uh, where it's appropriate. The six, I'll, what I'll do is I'll, I'll tell you what the six principles are uh, of persuasion and then we'll go through each one one at a time and I'll try and give some examples of where you might find this useful in your own life. The first one is reciprocation. And I'll just explain very briefly what that means. It means that when somebody, when you do a favor for somebody, or if you give something to somebody, they feel obliged to do something back for you. But there's some caveats to that as well, which we'll come back to. The second principle is authority, that people are going to be influenced by those who they believe to be in authority. The ones who say, well, this person seems to know what's happening, so I'll just follow the leader, that kind of thing. Another one then, the third one is commitment. Uh, It's consistency and commitment, actually. And what that means is that people want to stick with what they've done before, right? They they pick a lane and then they stick with it. That's why people always vote for the same uh, polit- political parties. It's why they follow the same football teams. They want to be consistent with what they've done before, and uh, we'll come back to that as well. Another one then is scarcity. It's it's why closing down sales work. It's why Harvey Norman always says, "Hurry, hurry, hurry!" The the, the sale is nearly over. That kind of thing. Uh, scarcity works. If if something is scarce, that means it's valuable. That means more people want it. The price goes up, and the desire to have that thing, whatever that thing is, goes up as well. So there there are ways to to use scarcity. Another one then is social proof. So social proof means that if other people are, are doing it, then you know I want to I want to do it as well. And that can work in reverse. It's called negative social proof. We'll talk a little bit about that. But social proof, I'll give you an example. It's why celebrities put their names to things, right? It's, it's why when like a celebrity, um, you know, says she uses Pam Olive shampoo or head and shoulders, whatever, sales go up because people look at the, the celebrity and they think, well, I want to be like that person, so I'm going to use that shampoo as well. That's social proof. There's proof in it being used by other people. And the last one, the last principle of persuasion according to uh, the author is liking right if somebody likes you they're more likely to to go along with what you want them to do 
So if likability is a huge thing for politicians, it's a huge thing for salespeople, uh, it's a huge thing for people who are successful in business. Um, is if, if you're liked, people are more likely to go along with you. So just to give an idea of what we're talking about when, we, when we're talking about uh, reciprocation, he talks about the, the difference between bread and wine. As in, when you do somebody a favor, does that favor age like bread? Does it get worse over time? Or does it age like wine? Does it get better over time? And the fact is, it depends on your frame of reference. If you've done a favor for somebody else, as far as you're concerned, that favor ages like wine, whereas for the other person, there's a good chance that favor ages like bread. So the example I've given before, if anyone's ever uh, seen me talk with this uh, in person live, the example I've given before is this. Imagine you are on your way out the door from work uh, on a, on a, uh, in an evening, right? 5, 5 p.m., let's say you finish work at 5 p.m., you're on your way out the door, and one of your colleagues comes over and says, listen, could you do me a favor really quickly? I have to go... Um, collect the kids from the childminder but I have this interview set up and it's just an initial um, interview with this particular candidate for this particular role could you just give them a, a quick interview and um, I just I can't do it and I'm in a real rush is there any chance you could just take 20 minutes half an hour meet this person and just give me some notes then in the morning is that, is that possible and you say yeah okay go on then it's fine and you do the do the favor for that person a week goes past and as far as you're concerned you've saved that person's life uh, quite literally right as far as you're concerned they have probably not thought about it since and that's that's what reciprocation is or that's that's how reciprocation can work is that the person still does feel indebted to you, you they still owe you the favor the debt lies with them but you have to be clear about the fact that the frame of reference is important depending on who did the favor for who uh, determines uh, the weight if you like of that favor so some ways that a, a, a business can use this idea of reciprocation is to give out free samples or to give coupons. You know, if you go around uh, your supermarket and you're, you're doing your weekly shopping and there's, um, there's always a stand there giving out free samples of something. And of course, it's, it, the whole point is that you're trying it before you, uh, before you buy it. It's, um, you know, a, a no risk um, gamble for you, if you like. You can try the product, see if you like it. If not, no problem. But really, it, it works from the psych psychological point of view of reciprocation. If you take a free sample, you you, you kind of feel obliged to, uh, to at least listen to the person's sales pitch, if not necessarily buy something. It's like when you go to a conference and you're walking around all the different stalls that are outside the, the conference room. You know, there's always, uh, at these events, there's always stands set up, people trying to sell things. And there's a bowl of sweets, or there is uh, free pens, or notebooks, or whatever it is. You know that if you take one of those sweets, if you take one of those notebooks, you're going to be obliged to talk to the person. You cannot just go up. The, the rules of society will not let you just go up and just scoop up 10 free pens and walk off. You always kind of go, oh, can I... Can I take one of these? Oh, you always act surprised as if, you know, these are these pens for me? Oh, my God. Amazing. And then the person gets talking to you and, you know, generally that's how business goes as well. Obviously, we need to, we all need to, to talk to the people. But you know for a fact that you cannot just go up and take the free stuff, right? You're obliged then. The obligation lies with you. And that's the powerful principle of reciprocation. So how can you use this in your own day-to-day dealings. Let's imagine you are a manager of a team and you want somebody on the team to, to work late at short notice. 
you need to make sure the obligation lies with them and, and, and not with you. So there are different ways you can do it. You can either offer them something first, uh, you know, <laughs> it sounds a bit underhanded, but almost no strings attached, but obviously there are strings attached, you're about to make a request of them. Or you can remind them of something you've done for them previously, right? You can, you can say, you can bring up something where you did a favor for them even a, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, and remind them of it before making your request. There are loads of ways to do this. There are loads of ways to use reciprocation. And all you're really doing, it's not necessarily manipulation of the other individual. All it is, it's like in, in one of the last episodes we talked about uh, Dan Pink's book, uh, To Sell as Human. We talked about uh, framing, you know, just, just allowing somebody to see a piece of information or to see a situation through a particular frame. And that's what you're doing here with reciprocation. If you're going to get, if you're going to ask something, if you're going to make a request of somebody, you need to make sure that the indebtedness lies with them. So you remind them of something, you make an offer to uh, to help them out some other time. As long as you understand the person's motivations or you understand what their objectives might be, it'll help you to, to understand how you should uh, approach that particular situation. And like I've said, and I'll probably say it a few times again, there are so many examples in this book. There are so many great ideas that can be given to you for how to, to improve your, your sales technique, your negotiation technique, uh, your 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 day-to-day -day running of a team technique there's so much in this book uh, we have converted it into a course and it will be uh, going live in the next i think well actually it depends when you're <laughs> depends when you're listening to this uh, from today anyway the 28th of the 11th uh, 2019 it'll be going live in the next couple of weeks and um, we're just putting a few final touches to to some of our courses that uh, will be going live in the next while but we'll talk about that again anyway the next principle of persuasion is authority that and the idea of this is that people are going to do things if somebody in authority tells them to do it. It's like if somebody is dressed as a police officer, as a guard, you're more likely to do what they say. You're not going to say, well, I need to see some identification, show me your CV, who's your commanding officer, right? All those kind of things. If somebody looks the part, they more likely are the part. And that's why everything communicates from what you're wearing to the eye contact that you make, the strength of your handshake, the thickness of your brochure, if you're handing a brochure to somebody, the style of your business card, everything communicates. And it's like, again, with what Dan Pink said in his book, we're, we're all in sales, we're all selling all the time. So if you're trying to convince somebody to do something, whether it's working late, whether it's uh, paying for your product or uh, doing an interview for you because you need to go and collect the kids from the childminder, that's sales and it's selling. And if you, you need to present these things with authority. And in the book, he talks about a very famous experiment. Um, if, you, if you know it, it's called the Milgram experiment. And the idea was this, that people were brought into a room and in front of them there was a, a box. And this box was uh, had all these, I think, 25 different uh, buttons. And each of these buttons had a different voltage, right? The idea was that there was a researcher who was carrying out an experiment. And what you had to do was to hit these different voltage buttons. And when you hit these different voltage buttons, somebody in, the, in another room who you could hear but could not see was going to get an electric shock. They were going to get a shock if they got an answer to a question wrong. I think they had to memorize pairs of words. You'd call out one word. The person in the other room had to call out the answer um, to, that paired with that word. It was something like that. And if they got it wrong, you just give them five volts, little jolt, right? It'd be like a hit and touch an electric fence, that kind of thing. 
and it went up to like 250 volts and i think at around 120 volts you're dead and at 250 your your body is just twitching right you're no longer with us but what was really interesting and that wasn't really the experiment as to and that what they told the person who was hitting the buttons they said this is to do with how uh, pain stimulates memory this is the idea that you know if somebody was under stress or under um, duress um, would have triggered their memory to make them remember these these words and the experimenter was very stern just sat there with a clipboard but wearing the white coat you know all the things that an experimenter should do and they would say to the uh, person hitting the buttons um yeah please next uh, 10 volts there please and the person kind of hit the 10 volts and they would hear the person in the other room going, ah ouch and it hurt them and then they'd get another question wrong it'd be 15 volts and 20 volts and 25 volts and on and on and on it went right until it got to the point where the person in the other room was screaming in agony so the person hitting the buttons was starting to panic on listen i don't know if this if we should be doing this or not but the whole point was the experimenter the person in the white coat with the clipboard just very nonchalant would say just continue there please no please just please we need to we need to make sure that we get all the data from this experiment please just continue and what was really interesting was that the person just gave away their own intelligence almost to this person who was in a position of authority it's incredible how and actually what would happen is the person in the other room went silent so this would get to 80 volts 85 volts 90 volts 95 volts and there was no no sound no answers coming back from the other room and there was a few people who went right to the very end the 200 volts 250 volts whatever it was but there were some people and it was interesting to see at what point people would say listen i can't do this anymore at what point they would break away from the authority now obviously the whole point was that it was fake right the person in the other room was in on it they were an actor they were screaming and roaring um you know in oscar winning fashion but what was really being tested was how far could somebody be pushed when an authority figure told them to do it even though it went against all their own morals it went it was probably getting illegal <laughs> up around 85 volts was starting to get uh, dangerously illegal and they would still do it and that's that's a powerful understanding of what authority actually is and how you can present yourself in an as an authority there's two ways for you to do this there's two ways to present your experience your expertise one way is to display it right you don't want to be like ron burgundy in anchorman where he says uh uh what's your woman's name veronica corningstone i think if i remember and he they're having a party and he tries to woo her <laughs> and he says i'm a i'm i'm kind of a big deal around here and she just doesn't care and he says i have many leather-bound books um my my office smells like mahogany or whatever it is that he says and it's just it's funny because it's stupid you can't just tell somebody you're a big deal you can't just tell somebody that you're uh, that you're important that you're intelligent you have to display it you have to say it without saying it you have to convey it that's one way of doing it so that's why how you look how you present yourself uh, your the strength your handshake all of those things matter and if you really want to know what a person of authority really does is they move slowly you think about anyone like Richard Branson, uh, Warren Buffett, Bill Gates, you know, any of these people who are leading billion dollar companies or who are in a position of authority, they are under a rush for nobody. And here's a little key little sales technique. Um, if you're if you ever struggle to get past the gatekeeper, if if you work in sales, you know the gatekeeper is just that person in between you and the and, and the potential customer who just feels all the calls. 
one of the best ways to get through that person is to talk really slowly on the phone. I don't mean in a in a weird way, but just let's say it was uh let's say I want to get through to Jeff and uh Jeff's assistant answers answers the phone and and he or she says well uh, Jeff isn't available at the moment. Well, I just say uh, before I even get a chance to say that I'll say something like how you doing it's uh it's Kevin here just um looking to looking to talk to Jeff please. I'm not excited. I'm not. I'm not worked up. I'm not. I'm just assuming you're going to put the call through, um, or you could just say something even simpler, like, "Can I? Can you put me through to Jeff, please?" And who's calling? You go. If, when they say who's calling, what you do is you take a half a beat, and you say, "It's Kevin." Like, and then at this point, they're thinking, "Oh, this this person obviously seems to know who Jeff is." Trust me, it doesn't always work, but it's a pretty interesting way to understand authority, to understand how to display your authority. Anyway, that was the first way to uh, to show your authority or to show your expertise is uh, is to display it. The second way, get somebody else to say it. If you've ever seen two people doing a, a sales pitch at the same time, they don't talk about their own experience, they talk about the other person's experience. This is uh, John. John is uh, 20 years in the business. He knows everything there is to know about vacuum cleaners and blah, 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 and lists off all the highlights from John's CV. Right, that's another way. Then it's much more believable when somebody does that rather than uh, me saying, "I'm Kevin. I've been working in uh, vacuum cleaner sales for 50 years." And blah, blah. It doesn't. It sounds like I'm boasting or showing off, so it doesn't always necessarily go as well. That's authority. Oh, if you want to see a sublime uh, representation of authority in action. Uh, have a look for a video on YouTube called Chiquito, right? It's, uh, let me just check the spelling real quick. It's uh, C-H-O-K-I-T-O. It's the name of a chocolate bar in Australia. Um, the name of the video is Bouncers Get Refused Entry. If you put in Bouncers Get Refused Entry and uh, Chiquito, right, the name of the chocolate bar on YouTube, there's a video of this guy who uh, basically... It just stands outside random places like car parks and uh, gyms and just acts like a bouncer. You know the way a bouncer acts like they, they look over your head and they say, not tonight, folks. Like for, let's give you no reason. This guy just does it brilliantly. It's a fantastic video. But it, it's actually it's really interesting how if you just display yourself as an authority, uh, people just accept it. The people just go along with it. They just kind of, they you give them that frame and they go along with it. That's, uh, that's authority. The next one then is uh, commitment or consistency and commitment. People want to go along with what they've done previously. It's one of the reasons why politicians will not change their mind. Um, even when there's evidence staring them in the face at the moment. Uh, again, it depends when you're, when you're listening to this. But at the moment in America, the Republican Party will not break away from President Trump. They will not uh, admit that he has done anything wrong because they just want to be consistent the whole time. Same thing in, in the UK with Brexit, with Boris Johnson. He's just uh, just peddles the same nonsense all the time and uh, just sticks to, what he want, sticks to what he says because as far as they're concerned, there is strength in, uh, in being consistent. Uh, or having commitment to what you said uh, previously. One of the ways you can use this in your own uh, either professional or personal life is to label people positively. Say, for example, you need somebody who is not on your team to do something for you. Uh, you could say something like, I know this isn't really your job or your area of expertise, but there's any chance you could have a look at this particular problem or this particular project. What you've done there is you've given them a way out. But if you label somebody positively, say, listen, 
I know you're a problem solver. Uh, I know you like to work on difficult things and uh, blah, blah. Say, say positive things to them and then make your request. People will want to go along with how they've been labeled. They want to be consistent with how you see them. So if you see them as a problem solver, if you see them as somebody who's a team player and you tell them that, in their head they'll think, yeah, I am a team player. Yeah, I am actually really good at problem, uh, solving problems. I, I want to go along with that. They want to be consistent with what they've done previously. One of the things he talks about in the book is a, uh, a an experiment that was done with um, these very nice houses. And they went to these people and they said, is there any chance we could put this massive, huge billboard in your garden that says, uh, drive slowly? Uh, I know it's all to do with neighborhood watching, you know, looking out for each other. And what was really interesting is that there was a huge percentage of the people that were asked that actually allowed it. It was a full 76% of people allowed this massive billboard to go in their garden that said drive carefully. And the reason for this huge compliance had something that had happened to them two weeks before this request had come in. They'd been asked by a different volunteer worker if they would allow a three inch square sign that read be a safe driver in their garden. Like three inches by three inches, it's it's nothing. Can we just put this in your garden? We're going to put it in all the gardens so that everyone drives drives safely. That was the idea. And because they'd allowed the first one, they just kind of wanted to be consistent. They wanted to, to, to do what they'd done previously, and they just allowed the bigger one. 76% of people said, well, I let that other smaller one in. Yeah, I'm going to let the bigger one in as well. So some of the reasons that people uh, want to be consistent, right, is that actually, I should say, I should probably say this at the start, uh, all of these, all of these six principles of persuasion all come down to to caveman behavior. Really, if you think back to when we were all in tribes back in the day, reciprocation worked, right? Reciprocation worked is because if if we all went out hunting, and only one of us came back with uh, with food, then if he shared, then the chances are that we'd share with him the next time, and so everybody survives. That's where reciprocation comes from. And something like commitment or consistency, it's seen as socially acceptable that this person is trustworthy. And if you're trustworthy, then you can stay in the tribe. It also allows for cognitive ease, right? If you always voted Labour, or in Ireland, if you ever always, I don't know if you voted uh, Fianna Fáil or, or Fine Gael or whoever it was, uh, or whatever the political party is in your country, if you always voted for that, the chances are you'll just vote for them the next time because of cognitive ease. You don't have to think about it. It's just, you know, that's just what you do. Same thing, like I said at the start, about supporting your, your favourite sports team. It's just consistency. You don't change teams because that's my team and I'm going to stick with them. It also leads to big problems then in politics as well where, where people refuse to see the other person's point of view. Anyway, now the next one he talks about in the book is scarcity. Right? This is a huge one. The more scarce something is, the more people want it. Very, very simple. The more scarce it is, the more people want it. And basing this on absolutely no uh, evidence at all, I would say that's why people uh, love sugar, love sweet things, is because our bodies or our, our caveman brains haven't developed as quickly as uh, as the as the world around us. Uh, things like sugar used to be a rare commodity, I suppose, back in the caveman days. These days, not so much, but our brains, our stupid brains have not caught up and that's why we all love uh, sweet things and, and fatty things. It's because we're, uh, those kind of resources are supposed to be scarce, but they're not <laughs> because we've figured it out and uh, we still eat loads of them and that's why we can't stop. So anyway, scarcity, one of the ways you can use this is to think about loss language, right? Using the language of loss rather than the language of gain. If you talk about what somebody stands to lose rather than what they stand to gain, 
there's a much better chance you're going to get what you're looking for. One of the things I talk about in the book, and like I said, this book is an encyclopedia in 271 pages, I think it is. It's an encyclopedia of examples and of experiments and of uh, actionable content that you can then go and use. I definitely suggest you either read the book or take the course from us when it comes out. Um, but what I'm doing is I'm giving you a whistle-stop tour here through it. So one of the things I talk about in this book is this idea of lost language when it comes to scarcity. And they talk, they give an experiment of uh, house insulation where they t took two different neighborhoods who had similar size houses, um, similar socioeconomic background of owners and all that kind of thing. And to one group, they said that if you insulate your house, you will save $1 a day for the rest of the year. Um, you know, you'll make savings of $1 a day, basically. And there was a very moderate uptake. And the other neighborhood, um, you know, same size, same socioeconomic background for comparison, they use lost language. They say, if you don't insulate your house, you're going to lose $1 every day um, in heating bills uh, for the rest of the year. And they had a huge uptake because people were afraid of what they were going to lose. They weren't necessarily interested in what they were going to gain. Another thing they talk about in that book is um, it, it's not as popular anymore, I don't think, unless you're up at four o'clock in the morning with a, with a small child, a baby, giving them a bottle or something. But it's those infomercials, you know, the infomercials where they try and sell you a, a, a mop that has steam comes out of it or the Penali pen set or the Craftmatic adjustable bed or uh, the new uh, blender that can blend everything that you put into it. Those kinds of things. There was a famous one called the QVC channel back in the day. As I'm sure it's still around. I have no idea. But back in the day it was called QVC. And there was a woman brought in to uh, increase sales. And I think she was like one of the producers on the program. Or one, one of the producers on the, on the station. And what she did um, was increase sales by 23% within a matter of weeks. And the way she did it was by changing the wording of how they told people when to call. You know, when they, they do their, their sales pitch and there's one person going, oh my God, this mop is amazing. And can it really do all these things and it can clean this floor and blah, blah, blah. Call now to order your steamy mop, right? Whatever it's called. But what this woman did, this genius of a woman, she came in and she said, rather than just saying call now uh, to order your mop, what she did was she said, if lines are busy, please call back. And what that did was it put in the person's mind, the person sitting at home, it put in their mind this idea that everyone else is buying them. This idea of scarcity, this idea of why would the lines be busy? Maybe John, I'll just and it's not it's not like a huge mass panic, but it's enough of a panic where people go, you know, I'll just I'll I'll just I'll just get that ordered now, just just in case they do run out. It just gives them a little niggle, just enough to think, yeah, maybe I'll just order that, that, that steam mop now, right? Scarcity works and lost language works. Another example they give in the book is of a beef shortage, right? So there was these uh, salespeople who had a beef shortage, right? So they, they were selling meat to the supermarkets. And what they did was they told these supermarkets that the uh, there was a, a run on beef, basically, and there, there was a shortage. But what was really interesting is that they said, not only is there a shortage, we don't know why there's a shortage. So we don't know how long this shortage is going to last. And there was two things there. One, the scarcity of there's just not enough beef going around. And secondly, we don't know when this shortage is going to end. Those two things combined are a very, very powerful combination. And that combination of, uh, of a recent shortage, right? It has to be a recent shortage. It can't just be like, 
uh, shortages would never have enough stuff. The urgency has gone out of it then. It has to be a recent shortage and it has to be, uh, if it's an unknown reason as to why there's a shortage, um, that's when panic buying happens or that's when orders increase and that's exactly what happened. One of the things I talk about when it comes to that kind of scarcity or that kind of shortage is if there's this high social demand, then that's going to become very valuable as well. Um, one of the examples is a, uh, a nightclub. There's always a queue outside a nightclub and then when you get into the nightclub, more often than not, it's fairly empty inside. The whole idea is that if there's a queue, it must be the place to be. There's high social demand and people want to get in there. It's why in restaurants, if you ever go into an empty, my mother always says never go into an empty restaurant, right? Which is a fair point. But if you do happen to go into an empty restaurant, where are they going to sit you? If they know what they're doing, they should sit you near the window. So the people walking by see you and that's social proof. That's high social demand. And that means that other people are more likely to be attracted in. The people at the window attract more people in. So that's scarcity. The next one then is uh, social proof. And social proof is fairly standard. Uh, it's like I said that if, if a, uh, a model, if a celebrity is using a particular type of shampoo, the chances are the company is going to sell more of that shampoo. But what's very important about social proof is that if you're trying to convince somebody to buy a particular product or to do something that you want them to do, you have to show them social proof of somebody who's just like them. Say, for example, there is a, uh, a member of a girl band who is now selling shampoo on the television. I am not their target market. Their target market is people who are like that person or who aspire to be like that person. That's who you're looking to uh, to compare to. That's so, so when you're showing social proof, you have to, uh, you have to compare to people who are like them. That's why uh, a company, if they have the, the means and the the resources to do this is that when they gather testimonials about their product or their service, they'll try and get lots of different people, lots of different demographics so that they're, they're covering their entire uh, total addressable market is what they call it, their, their entire market. So they've got something for everyone. And the same thing, if you want to convince somebody on your team to work late, there's no point comparing that person to somebody that they've never met. Compare that person to somebody who's like them or somebody that they aspire to be. John, is there any chance you can work late tonight? Dave over there, uh, he's agreed to do it. And if John likes Dave or John uh, looks up to Dave, then there's more chance that John's going to stay late. That kind of thing. That's what social proof is. The sixth and final principle of persuasion is liking. This is just, again, if, if somebody likes you, they're more likely to go along with you, right? It's it's what good salespeople do. They're not pushy. They're not. Um, they're genuinely interested in in solving your problem. It's the same with influence and persuasion in all walks of life. If somebody likes you, they're more likely to go along with you. But a key thing here, when it comes to getting somebody to like you, the real trick is to like them first. Is to be genuinely interested in them. It's something you cannot fake. Not really. You can fake it to a certain extent. But you generally cannot fake liking somebody. The way you make sure that you genuinely will like the person is to be genuinely interested. Ask open questions and to take an interest in them. And so that's it. That They are the six principles of, uh, of persuasion according to the book Influence, The Psychology of Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. Let me just finish off with some examples of companies that I think uh, are doing it quite well. And like I said at the very beginning, 
all of these uh, principles of persuasion, even though you list them out almost in bullet points like reciprocation, authority and commitment and scarcity and so on, when it comes to the real world, it's almost like at the moment when I'm talking about it, it's in 2D, two dimensions. But when you bring it up off the page, out of your ears, into the real world, it becomes three-dimensional, which means that they all overlap um, and there's hazy, fuzzy lines between them. For example, uh, this is a story I've told before. It's one of my favorites because it's uh, to do with one of my kids. Uh, my eldest, when my, my wife had, I think the, the eldest, she was probably a few months old, maybe two or three months old. And anyone who has had kids knows that on the first one, the first two or three months after that you brought the child home from the hospital, is um, it's a whirlwind of not sleeping, of trying to understand how to change a nappy, all of those fantastic things. And this particular time, and by the way, my eldest daughter is fantastic. She was the easiest baby uh, out of the three of them, really. <laughs> but it's beside the point. Uh, we were, the baby was asleep and we were uh, just watching telly, you know, having a cup of tea or whatever. And an ad came on the telly for SMA. You know SMA, the, the baby food formula? And their tagline on the ad was, take it from us. You're doing great. And my wife kind of half jokingly said to me, well, at least they think I'm doing a good job at being a mother right and i thought it was really interesting how how sma put it across take it from us you're doing great and they said something like we're 130 years you know yeah, feeding babies or whatever it was and it's really interesting because what they've done there is they've positioned themselves as an authority like they haven't said we're really good at what we do you should listen to us they say take it from us and you'd only take it from us because there's an assumption there that they're the experts take it from us you're doing great Fantastic use of, uh, of authority there, and I suppose a little bit of social proof as well. Another company that does it very well uh, with scarcity is uh, Disney. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you are aware of the Disney Vault, right? The Disney Vault is completely made up, and what it means is that if you went to go and buy the original, say, Jungle Book or uh, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, whatever it is, if you go and try and buy one of those original films, you'll find that you generally cannot buy them. Um, at certain points of the year they only what they call they only open the Disney vault every now and again and what they're doing is they're manufacturing scarcity it's genius and people love it going oh fantastic the, the Disney vault is open and the jungle book is out right I don't know if they do it as much anymore it was a big thing uh, many years ago probably not as much these days with uh, Amazon and all those kind of online um, abilities to do that another one that is quite um, topical because it's actually happening tomorrow uh, is Black Friday Black Friday has been an absolute phenomenon, right? The 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 sales that are offered, and um, people have been trampled in America, and now it's spreading across the world where people are queuing up outside of these stores, and um, the night before to try and get it, you know, twenty percent off a television, and it creates mass panic. This idea of of scarcity of. Uh, you know, you've only got one chance and then you've also got social proof in there as well because, well, everyone else is queuing up to do it, so I'm going to do it too. It's like when the iPhone first came out and people were queuing up for weeks beforehand to be the first ones to get an iPhone. And now, if you're at, like my house, there are iPhones and Samsung phones kicked around the floor um, with babies looking at them every now and again. Other things that work for scarcity as well are closing down sales, right? There was a shop in Dublin. Uh, when I was a kid and as far as I was concerned it was forever closing down I think it was called no name or something like that or maybe it was actually called closing down sale <laughs> but it was forever closing down all their stock had to go and it just causes like that kind of that scarcity that mass panic 
Another one of my favourites is uh, Reunion Tours or uh, the Farewell Tours. Elton John has been on a farewell tour for about a decade now, as far as I can make out. Rod Stewart, I think, is doing something similar. Like, this is, I swear, this is the last time I'm going to tour. I'm not doing this again. Okay, I'll do it one more time. It works. It sells tickets. Um, uh, who's, who's the Irish band Westlife they are back uh, doing a reunion tour One Direction have done it very cleverly they never actually officially broke up they're just on hiatus um, so they will come back at some stage when their uh, their bank accounts start to get light they'll be back to do a reunion tour and everyone will go and sell it because it, or go and buy the tickets and it'll sell out in no time because it'll be scarce we don't know if they're going to do it again this is just a one off tour um, it's a one-off album before you know it there's 10 more albums and you know as I swear we're going to go away very soon other places that do the principles of persuasion very well are like uh, when you're buying a car test drive back in the day a test drive used to be a drive up to the roundabout and come back again and yeah what do you think do you want to buy it these days when you go to buy a car they want you to take the car for the weekend put the kid seats into it put the uh, put the boogie into the boot make sure it all fits right and what they're doing there is they're getting, they're getting, they're embedding this car in your life. You've got your kids in it. The kids love it. The, you know, everything fits really well into the, into the back. It's nice and spacious, blah, 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 blah. It's consistent or you will now be consistent with this car. You're going to find it very difficult to hand this car back. Oh yeah, I'll just keep it. I've got all the stuff in the car now. And you want to be consistent with what you did previously. And I'll finish on this one and um, this is something that I, I and by the way I fall for all of these things I'm just because I, I, I read these books and note this stuff doesn't mean I'm immune to it at all one of the things that I fell for back in the day that I don't use it anymore is the Nespresso machine I don't know if anyone still uses Nespresso machines I think they're fairly standard these days but do you remember when they first came out what they're doing there with an Nespresso machine is they're just making it way more difficult to make a cup of coffee now I know there's people listening to this all over the world, but uh, in in Ireland there was a there is still a shop called Brown Thomas, very very fancy store, very very fancy shop. And if you wanted to buy the capsules for the Nespresso machine, you had to go in to Brown Thomas, and you couldn't just buy the capsules. You had to have a conversation about your your preferred favor, flavor profiles, right? You say, I, "I'm just looking to buy some coffee, please," and they go, "Oh, excellent! And what what kind of flavors do you think you might be interested in?" Well, this one has, and they started to talk about coffee as if it was like wine, and it was weird. It just became more difficult to have a cup of coffee through this particular process, and yet people were queuing up to buy these little capsules in this one particular shop. Genius use of scarcity, genius use of authority, uh, genius use of uh, commitment, genius use of all of it really, and actually social proof because who's in the ads? None other than the handsome man himself, George Clooney, right? Genius. It was just a genius launch of a product, and um, obviously these days, as far as I know, I don't even use an espresso machine anymore. Went back to the the plunger one, the French press, I think it's called. It's my favourite. I mean, like, it's it's amazing how we all just kind of, oh, yeah, we need to, you have to have an espresso to do the best coffees in the world, supposedly. That's what we all said. They do the best coffee in the world, supposedly. But we didn't know because we just believed other people because of social proof. Anyway, that's a lot of talking. I didn't think I was going to do that much talking, but I've done a lot of talking there about the six principles of persuasion. They are reciprocation, authority, commitment, scarcity, social proof, and liking. Speaking of liking, please give us a like or a retweet on Twitter, uh, on Instagram, on Facebook, on LinkedIn. Uh, you'll find me, Kevin Redmond, on LinkedIn. Get in touch. Let me know what you think. 
please do tell two people that you know about this podcast if you think it is of value, if you think it is useful. Uh, it is it is doing gangbusters, as they say. It's it's going way better than I thought it would. Um, I'm, that's why I'm, I'm continuing to do it. I think I, I love doing it, and uh, other people seem to like it too. But please do get in touch and tell me specifically what you like about it, because um, I'm a little bit in the dark as to why so many people are listening at the moment. And uh, tell two people that you know um, about this podcast and let's really get it let's let's challenge joe rogan for his title of biggest podcast in the world until next time my friends talk to you soon bye bye